Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Saturday, April 8, 1995. In a North Sydney boardroom, some of the most important administrators in rugby union met to discuss the threat from News Limited, who had already begun efforts to strengthen their pool of players with some of Australia's best rugby union talent. With other market forces at work across the world, and on the eve of a World Cup in South Africa, which presented an unprecedented opportunity, it was clear that drastic action was needed. The following Wednesday, the New South Wales and Queensland rugby unions issued a press release confirming their stance. Amateurism as a concept is outmoded and should be dispensed with in the modern game, wrote New South Wales rugby union chairman Ian Ferrier. It was the opening salve in a series of events which would see rugby union across the world abandon a century-old amateur tradition and embrace open professionalism. This is the World in Union, the 18th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? I'm great, mate. How are you? Uh, I'm good. King's got up over Joey's uh, over the moon. Uh, (laughs) This is a very different episode for us. This chapter focuses on developments in rugby union in 1995. Like you've been saying all along, it's it's not our favourite topic, but it's something that has to be addressed in this war. It's uh, intrinsically linked. You can't tell a comprehensive story of Super League without mentioning the ramifications it had for rugby union and then when you look at how the two codes fared over the next few years and the existential threat that rugby union posed to rugby league at the turn of the century it's critical to discuss this aspect of the war well i'm sure we'll get into it but it's worth saying up top that they were neck and neck at that point the codes in australia yeah so we'll discuss that at the end uh up front we've actually got a few rugby union listeners who for some reason, put up with our constant trashing of the game. So uh, Rugby Reg, Hugh Rothwell, want to shout you guys out. This one's for you. And we've got uh, former Wallaby Ben Darwin, who's become a friend of the show. Great bloke. Yeah, you might be hearing more from him soon. Um, you can follow uh, Reg Roberts. Uh, he's on the Green and Gold Rugby podcast. I think it's greenandgoldrugby.com. Yeah, we are a rugby league show. So this story is being told through the prism of rugby league. So if you're wanting the definitive account of what happened in Rugby Union in 1995, this isn't it, but we're going to do our best to go through all the ins and outs, but focus on the effect they had on Rugby League. And the place I want to start this is not with Rugby Union, but the general air of, in my notes, I've called it the Murdoch Spring, that the events of Super League, all these other sports suddenly saw this opportunity to change everything and get a slice of that Murdoch pie. 
it made me laugh about some of the sports that we're trying to <laughs> cash in. So just a short run through. And in most cases, I haven't actually gone to the length of seeing which ones got up. But uh, basically any sport in 1995, there's a story about it somewhere going, you know, ping pong is poised to create a, a world super league of ping pong. You know, every sport has this happening. Surfing was one of the big ones. That to me was the funniest because any sport where it's got judging, where you have to do tricks, <laughs> to me, that's not a sport, it's a hobby. <laughs> and especially because the surfing mentality is all about just being in the water and, and riding waves. and The idea of like performing tricks <laughs> for three judges. So the funny thing is surfing was one of the things that did get up and there were major changes and more extensive TV coverage of surfing in the wake of putting together a, a deal. Uh, other sports to try it were tennis, cricket, uh, even AFL talking about a potential Super League. Well, tennis went on with it, sort of. And the funny thing is with all of these, and I'll read this quote from the tennis side of things, uh, someone from the International Tennis Federation said, it's not meant to be some sort of rebel tour. It would be the establishment trying to improve the system using Murdoch's money and influence. And that is basically the case with all of these sports. It wasn't News Limited coming to them and trying to get a breakaway. It was the establishments of these organizations. <laughs> Do you mean to say the organizations looked at the long-term future of their sport and thought, <laughs> how can we improve this? And this is the important thing to note about rugby union. The main battle in this chapter is ostensibly the war between News Limited and the World Rugby Corporation for control of rugby union worldwide. But it wasn't a rebel thing. It was the establishment going to News Limited and basically selling a Super League to them. So basically every sport in the world thought this is a good opportunity except for one. <laughs> and again, Rugby League did do it, but it took outsiders, it took Brisbane to go to News Limited with a plan. I think we can safely say that, especially in that era, that the Rugby Union uh, administration was ahead of the curve on Rugby League. <laughs> they seized an opportunity and went for it, yeah. whereas Rugby League sat on their hands for decades. Yeah. And almost paid the ultimate price, which you know we'll touch on at the end. But the last thing I want to say about this is you were seeing a lot of news reports at the time that this was some grand plan of Rupert Murdoch to get hold of every sport in the world and have pure domination. And the whole Super League thing was just a smokescreen to get rugby union and get the world. Expensive smokescreen. Yeah. <laughs> but in every case, Super League included, it was sporting bodies or people within the sport going to them. So... Any notion of some grand plan is but, a fallacy. But, but what media magnate wouldn't want the best content for these media outlets? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that is the grand plan, isn't yeah. it? Like, Kerry Pack is part of a grand plan to get the best TV shows for <laughs> Channel 9. So let's get into the union context. And as soon as Super League broke, it became a real threat to rugby union. And people within the game were very worried about the ramifications for their sport if they didn't make a change. Such a precarious position for them, early 90s, where the sham of amateurism was still hanging around, sort of going, and then rugby leagues full steam ahead on the, here's money for everybody. And that notion, here's money for everybody, that was at the heart of it. So in the early days after April 1, rugby union figures were being linked every day to going to Super League. So Jason Little and Tim Horan, who were the Australian centers at the time, they were written about as 
already signed. That was up there with the CEO of Super League, Fate of Complete. Yeah, right? yeah. I thought that's a guarantee, yeah. Jason Little. Yeah, it was just talked about openly. Uh, and the same with all their other key stars. It w- well, Joe Roth in Canberra, I remember that one because he's a Canberra boy that was like, yeah, he'll, he'll be there for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Local junior. <laughs> there was a lot of talk about the All Blacks going to league as well. And almost immediately, Super League were reaching out to try to sign some of the best rugby union talent. So it was a real threat and rugby union saw it that way. And the other aspect of it was, as we've talked about in, in chapters in the past, uh, potential merging of the two codes, which... At that point in time, and to some extent even to this day, you don't need much to like <laughs> get all these rumours going that you know, they're, they're merging the codes. Rugby League fans are like a talkback caller to Alan Jones when that gets mentioned. It just riles everybody right up, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> but there was a lot of talk at this time that it was going to happen. It was almost a fait complete discussion about yeah. that. But in reality, as much as we both think that League is the superior game, there's very little chance of it happening without it being a rugby union takeover, the way the two games are poised worldwide. In, in the jousting back and forth between the, the codes, often in good fun, often not, it's always that we don't understand that no one else plays this game around the world, but we do understand that we're just embarrassed by it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hated reading this in uh, Peter Fitzsimons' book, The Rugby War. Ugh. Short of an outright massacre of rugby league, this will not happen. For while rugby league remains a genuinely strong game in Australia... In most other countries, it's a parish pump game at best, and there is simply no chance a hybrid version of Union and League would ever be accepted in a country like France. See, he is 100% right with that. But if Rugby League administration had got their act together in the 80s, they could have been going to the world with this product, which if it was a drug dealer, it would be the same price and twice as potent. Yeah. And they would have got it over. But... And, and several opportunities before the 80s too. And, you know, there's been some nefarious actions taken by various rugby unions around the world in those intervening decades but we can't blame them all for our inability to well, capitalize it's hard to promote a game with board holes in your feet yeah generally <laughs> but if union were going to capitalize on the opportunity that was presented they had to turn their backs on something that had been the bedrock of rugby union as a game more than a game as a concept which was amateurism so I wanted to break that down by looking at the history of amateurism and give the historical context and then look at where it was in 1995. I want to say at the outset that we're standing on the shoulders of giants here with people like Tony Collins, who have written so long and so brilliantly about this subject. There's been so many journal articles, books written about the subject of amateurism, particularly in relation to the 1895 split and class relations in the UK around that time. So this isn't a a history of amateurism. I'd encourage everyone to seek out books like Tony Collins' Rugby's Great Split, another book, Barbarians, Gentlemen and Players by Eric Dunning and Kenneth Sheard, and as I said, countless journal articles. I think this topic has had more academic investigation than anything else to do with either code. My personal view on amateurism is I love it as a pure ideal. It's just the phoniness of it which upset me. But if it was still going and it was legitimate, yeah. I'd support it. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's the point that I want to make with this historical context. You almost said horrific. <laughs> is that it was always a phony ideal. Uh, and it's hard to refute the charge that I'm cherry-picking the literature to make my point. Uh, my only defense for that is that it's not servicing a personal agenda, but 
rather than the story that I'm telling here. Although admittedly, there is a personal agenda as well. <laughs> First time I remember learning about it was My Game, Your Game, Campisi and Meninga's book. And then Campisi, wink, wink, nod, nodding about his Italian yeah. rugby contracts and making all this money. I'm thinking, like, why don't I just pay him for playing rugby? Like? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to think of amateurism as a particularly Victorian ideal. I mean, the queen, not the state. So it was born out of this era and this ethos. So... Obviously, rugby union came to prominence through the public schools of England, particularly the rugby school. And so it already had a, an upper middle class bent to it. Public school over there meaning private school. Yeah, exactly. And again, I'm not going into the history in, in depth, but there's all these concepts emerging outside of sport and in society at the time that go into this amateurism ideal, this idea of muscular Christianity and and all these um, um, very, very interesting topics that we don't have time to get too into. But terms like it's not cricket, you know, that comes out of this this Victorian ideal of, you know, the game's the thing and, and all this, which even at the time was like bullshit. I do like the gentlemanly ideal though, but it's more like an exclusionary class yeah. weapon. Exactly. And so this didn't really become a problem until the working class started to get more and more involved in playing rugby union. So through the 1870s, there was a big pickup of the game in the north in Yorkshire and Lancashire. So this was a thing where class distinctions weren't as big a thing as they were in the south. And you had teams forming from from factories and pubs and churches and melding in with the, you know, the public school kids with less friction than there was in the south. And with that came different attitudes to things like charging for admission and all these other things that would become a point of contention later on. And as the century wore on, the game became more popular in the north and more and more people were playing and playing at a high level to the point where they were getting into the English team and, you know, representative teams. And the power brokers in the south could no longer ignore this different sort of person who was playing the game. It's so funny that <laughs> you're trying to exclude the, the very people that the game's built for, tough, robust men. <laughs> yeah. And all this was taking place in the wider context of a growing conflict in society as the working classes were being reawakened from what Max Engels described as 40 years of slumber. There was a, a growing class consciousness and more conflict and uprisings and that sort of thing in society. So you had strikes and demonstrations and then... You know, there were players taking part in these strikes and local clubs getting together to, you know, raise money for people on strike and that sort of thing. So all this class conflict was going on as the Northern Rugby Union were increasingly butting heads with the South over rugby matters as well. So it seems unlikely that this was all a coincidence, that it was all coming together at this point in time. Yeah, absolutely. And because of this, you're seeing all this phony paternalism from the administrators in the South. Comments like this from a man named Frank Marshall. I look upon rugby for the working man much as I regard the same game for my boys at school. <laughs> These childlike northerners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There was just this constant condescension towards the northern players and the immediately stamping out any of the ideas of broken time, payment for lost work, which was obviously the crux of the split in 1895. So this comment from Arthur Budd, uh, the head of the rugby union, typifies the, the attitude. The answer then to those who urge that the working man ought to be compensated for loss of time 
incurred by his recreation is that if he cannot afford the leisure to play a game, he must do without it. What would happen if stockbrokers wanted compensation for loss of time? Compensation commensurate with earnings would create a scandal. AB, the stockbroker, has therefore to stop at home at his desk because he cannot afford to play. But CD, the working man, is allowed his outing and compensation for leaving work. And it was viewed as this working class vice that... (laughs) (laughs) Way to promote the game. And any idea of being paid to play was viewed as leading to, uh, and this is a quote, corruptibility, disrepute, and sometimes absolute decay. (laughs) But the thing about it is, it was bullshit then. Amateurism was a malleable virtue. I'll just read this quote from the book, Barbarians, Gentlemen and Players. Prior to the 1880s, the amateur ethos existed in a relatively inchoate form. It was, that is, an amorphous, loosely articulated set of values regarding the functions of sport and the standards believed necessary for their realisation. However, with the threat posed by incipient professionalisation in the North, the amateur ethos began to crystallise as a highly specific, elaborate and articulate ideology. So it was actually in the MCC's like rules that payment for expenses was allowed. And that was essentially what the North were arguing for. But suddenly when it was coming from, yeah. you know, this section, it was, oh, no, 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 we can't have that, you know. Absolutely. It's always rubbed me the wrong way, like elitism. But like reading your notes has really clarified how much classism has had an effect on society. But yeah. I mean, I was in London in the early 2000s and it was prevalent then. We we're very lucky in this country to be reasonably flat. Yeah. Like there's a clear, clear divide over there. No good. And it's not something, especially at this time, that you could easily, you know, go up or down. No, there was no relegation and promotion (laughs) then. (laughs) And on that, on relegation and promotion, the very idea of cup and league competition was viewed as somehow sinful. (laughs) All these vices, like we used to have a nice unfiltered cigarette and a sherry (laughs) instead of playing these sports. So if we look at the path to professionalism in the 1890s, there were a few different arguments being made. One of them was for the broken time payments. And that is, you know, the reason we're here in this room talking about rugby league is because in 1895, the Northern Rugby Union split over the idea of broken time payment. But there were people at that same time arguing for open professionalism, saying, well, you know, people are willing to pay to come to the grounds it's fair that the players get some of that payment. This argument persisted for 100 years, this idea of the social decay that would be caused by professionalism in sport. And for that length of time, soccer was used as the example that it would lead to hooliganism <laughs> and all the rest of it. There is an argument that has happened, though. You've got the pokies, you've got the gambling, the cigarette sponsorship. It's quite decaying. Yeah, there's a lot to that, but it's. I guess the problem is when it's these people who are already upper class, not even like, you know, working good jobs, they were gentlemen, like yeah. half of them didn't have to work. And- well, that's what annoys me the most, this idea that rich benefactors prop up small clubs for a hobby of some rich gentleman so he can maintain his place on a social hierarchy. Mm. Like that is the most annoying part. Yeah. And it still happens in Sydney club rugby. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it is disingenuous to say that these were all poor mill workers and miners who just wanted payment for having to, you know, travel to St. Helens on a Saturday afternoon. Because as I said, there were people arguing for open professionalism. Mm. Uh, but the, the third argument was people saying like, who are we kidding? 
we know people are getting paid, so let's just be honest about it. <laughs> it took 100 years to sort it out. <laughs> so that idea of shamateurism was prevalent even then. This was happening in the 1870s with rumours going around that Yorkshire had a paid man in their ranks. But it was happening in the South as well. And this is a letter to the, the editor in 1906 written by the boss of Warrington, by then a rugby league club. So this was written in the Daily Mail. After the scathing criticisms of the Northern Union, which have appeared from time to time in your paper, will you kindly permit me, as a one-time member of the Lancashire County Rugby Union Committee, and as one of the founders of the Northern Union, to make a few comments on what occurred at the special meeting of the Rugby Union this week? I have the greatest respect for my old acquaintance. I won't presume to call him friend, Mr Rowland Hill, but there are none so blind as those who will not see. If he will not acknowledge that professionalism has inserted even the thin edge of the wedge into the rugby union game, he evidently believes that we foolish boys who revolted from the rugby union 10 years ago left the parent body absolutely pure and that they have maintained that purity ever since. Go to. (laughs) The officials of the Northern Union clubs could tell some queer stories of what prominent rugby union clubs are paying their players and the difficulty there is in inducing them to come into the fold of the Northern Union in consequence. Now we have the opinion of J.F. Byrne, the old Mosley and County fullback, I presume. He says a large amount of veiled professionalism undoubtedly exists in the rugby union, and that was worse than actual professionalism. Exactly so, and the same remarks apply to 10 years ago. This is the chief reason why we, as men who like to do things above board, seceded from the rugby union. Scathing. How good is that writing? (laughs) Like, this is a rugby league guy. Sounds like Shakespeare back then. <laughs> Compare it to now. Go to. That's the best. <laughs> but it's important to put that in just as an example of the hypocrisy and the way the Northern Union people thought that they had been treated when they could see what was going on from the other side. Incredible, isn't it? And so that's something that persisted for the next century. But over the course of that time, there were previous efforts prior to 1995 to end the sham amateurism that was going on and embrace professionalism. Again, they were met with the moralistic argument that, look what's happening with the hooligans in soccer. We can't go down that path. We have to stay pure. (laughs) Was hooliganism that far back? Yeah, I know. It's weird. So they've been that idiotic for that long. Yeah. (laughs) But so the biggest push for professionalism prior to 95 came in 1983. Uh, You know, this was not long after World Series cricket. And in the wake of that, David Lord, who was uh, an Australian promoter, actually tried to get up a Rebel Rugby Union competition for payment. You know, some of the leading players were had signed or were threatening to sign. There are a lot of coverage in the papers that now is the time that we go professionalism. Uh, in the end, that fell apart because he didn't have the money, really. It astounds me that it held on for so long because... Yeah, you get these old boys' networks of jobs or whatever, but who wants to work hard for another 40 years? Like, wouldn't you just rather retire with rugby union money? (laughs) But so as this was happening, there were market forces at work. So the International Rugby Board were suppressing efforts for a World Cup despite, you know, it being talked about from, you know, the 70s onwards that we've got more and more people playing this game. Wouldn't be great to have a World Cup and the rugby board going, oh, no, 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 that that's a, a slippery slope to professionalism if we get involved with that. <laughs> How could they possibly not see the value in that? That's rugby league-ish. Yeah. So, so the first Rugby Union World Cup was in 1987 and the wheels were basically set in motion from that point on. Suddenly you had more and more endorsements in the game. 
more and more money was coming in. You had in England Twickenham having this, you know, major cash injection for a renovation and it became a place where they needed to host more and more games. So suddenly the idea that they could cling on to this old school ties and, you know, just this gentlemanly game. It was at odds with everything that was happening with the game around the world. You can't have full stadiums and then not have player payments. Simple as that. But the reality of it's completely different as far as the slippery slope because you listen to um, college basketball match-fixing stories. The way they get to them is like, well, they fill this arena up every week. Yeah. You don't get a dime. Yeah. He's 10,000, shave some points. Yeah, exactly. That's, and that's why they all do it. Yeah. If they were getting paid 200 grand a year, they'd be like, no, thanks. And I mean, they're getting titles stripped for accepting like a jacket. You yeah, know? yeah. It's like. So, I mean, like, that's what creates a slippery slope. Yeah, exactly. So, hooliganism. <laughs> and so, entering the 90s, rugby union was big business. But this shamaturism was still ongoing. When they finally did announce that they were going professional, Jack Gibson had the quote, I see where rugby union is going professional. All that means is that they've decided to pay tax. <laughs> is there anybody in our game who can turn a phrase like Jack no. Gibson? I love the guy. <laughs> he would have been a great comedian. Yeah. And I, I remember as... As a kid, like my dad telling me about brown paper bags and all that sort of thing, like in, in reference to rugby union. And I, I didn't quite understand, like, you know, why are they getting paid in paper bags? Yeah, it's hard to understand when you're yeah. a kid. But just why, why would they bother? Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, you, you mentioned it at the start, but the David Campisi playing for Riches in Italy is the one that gets talked about a lot. Uh, and he was pretty open about that. And by the 90s, everyone was open about it. It was an open secret that players were getting paid for games. So it became beyond a sham to continue with it. As is the oft-repeated trope in the um, Super League War, they're just looking after their families. You can't blame the players. <laughs> I don't blame the players. No. Why wouldn't you want to have some Laurie Nash? Well, the, the one counter to that, I would argue, is my next point, which is the fact that the players would hold up, you know, this virtue of amateurism and, oh, you know, we play for the game. While at the same time, regardless of the the brown paper bags and the rest of it, most of them were private school educated. Uh, I'm talking about the Australian sense of private school now. Private school educated. So already had that advantage. Playing rugby union at a high level gave them even more advantage. When you look at like the 1991 World Cup winning squad and what they did afterwards... It's full of, you know, bankers and It could have been a, um, and... a Christmas party photo for PricewaterhouseCoopers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about this clearly from the Australian perspective. Like over in Wales, like my dear uncle Brian, my favourite uncle, he's a proud Welshman, been here 40 years, but they're like rugby league people over there. Yeah. So it's like they don't get this. Yeah. And to them it was, the amateurism was probably a bit more closer to the heart. Yeah, Exactly. But obviously it was a different case here and there was an article in 1995 talking about the rugby network and the connections players were able to make uh, going into, you know, Nick Farr-Jones working in a bank in France because of his rugby connections and, and all the rest of it. Um, Gary Pearce, who we last heard as the driving force behind the Winfield Cup, uh, said, I've always said that if an earthquake hit the football stadium during a Bledisloe Cup game, two-thirds of the CBD would disappear. <laughs> it's so funny. I've often heard like casual fans comment to me and say, 
Oh, yeah, rugby league uh, fan. You've got a podcast. Have you? Yeah. I went to the rugby union one. It's a very different clientele there. <laughs> People wearing suits there. And they're, it's still this snooty attitude. Yeah, yeah. So there's 4,000 of them for a start. Because <laughs> um, I used to work at a pub near the SFS and the rugby union crowd was so different to the league crowd. Yeah. For a start, like the whole place was stunk out with cigars. <laughs> The most ungodly affectation. <laughs> but this is what gets me about the rugby union crowd. This phony morality they could hold up because of this amateurism that was all bullshit anyway. Yeah. So uh, in Peter Fitzsimons' book, The Rugby War, in the purest of amateur days, union administrators steered by the star of how do we get as many bums in muddy shorts as possible, while the league administrators always set their compass by the shining star of how can we generate as much money as possible. Well, I failed at that, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, and David Campese coming out and saying that obviously the money's a bonus, but I'd hate to see guys stay in rugby because of the money and not because they enjoy it. We've been loyal for years. The reason why they're doing that in league is the players just go for the money. They don't really care. There's no such thing as loyalty. And that was the way the threat of professionalism was viewed. Like a lot of players, even people who were in favor of professionalism in, in some kind, like Michael Liner talking about something's got to change it's inevitable but going on about the special character of rugby union and we can't lose as he says it's ambience and feel that we all love about it so as we got to 1995 and super league that air of inevitability was everywhere and there was no escaping it that rugby union administrators realized that in all purposes weren't amateur anyway so they had to go full on with professionalism and avoid losing the best players in their game. It must have been delightful, the public acknowledgement at the time, if you're old enough to enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) These high and mighty shamaturism proponents going, well, actually, we're going to be professional the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) So this war's decimated league. It's done a whole lot of uh, benefit for rugby union players in this country, but in a way it's decimated union too. Well, let's save that for the end because yeah. I, I do want to go into that. They had it very good for a while mm. and it all came out of this. And so as I mentioned in my opening monologue, it was a meeting of the key figures in rugby union exactly a week after April Fool's Day that you know everything was put into place. And what I want to say to start this section off is that there were many other forces at work across the world in pushing union towards professionalism. And this probably wasn't even the most influential. I'd say the World Cup, coming into the World Cup in South Africa, that probably had more of a worldwide influence than Super League. Talk about a promoter's dream. But it was this meeting and it was Super League that precipitated it that really set the wheels in motion. So, you know, think of it like World War One. The war was happening regardless of Franz Ferdinand, but it was that assassination that set everything off. Or if your reading list is anything like my house, the mouse in who sank the boat. (laughs) (laughs) And from that first meeting, the goal was always skewed towards TV and in particular Rupert Murdoch. So when the announcement was made on the Wednesday, the former Australian coach David Brockhoff said, What should happen now is that a consortium of rugby presidents from all the countries go straight to News Limited and sell the television rights of the game. And that's exactly what was happening. So in that boardroom, the leading power brokers, administrators in the game, 
had got together and one of their goals was to establish what they called the perfect rugby product. So they were brainstorming the best package they could sell to an organization like News Limited. We want 17 field goals a game. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should say uh, a lot of this content, I've mentioned the book a couple of times, a lot of this content uh, came from Peter Fitzsimons's The Rugby War. So I will begrudgingly give him my acknowledgement in this chapter. Where do you stand on Fitzsimons currently? Um, I think he's a massive wanker. I think that's obvious. But I mean, <laughs> I have a respect for him because he, he never deviates from his positions. I just think he's so pompous. Just completely opposite to rugby league. <laughs> I just love the fact that his column like 15 years ago was just GPS scores. I just love how much he has to talk about rugby league in his column. Because <laughs> yeah. like it wouldn't get printed. Delicious. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I do like that. And so one of the key figures in that meeting was uh, Simon Poitovan, who like everyone else in rugby union was keenly anticipating this global event that was going to bring rugby together i'm talking of course about that year's hong kong sevens <laughs> i used to think about that and go hong kong they can't be that into whatever they can they? i didn't realize of the expat community and whatever and, and the finance and stuff but it just blew me away it was like cricket in uae and yeah. i never got it you know <laughs> but he saw the writing on the wall and thought well instead of us trying to beat Rupert Murdoch, beat Rugby League, why don't we go to News Limited and see if we can do something, you know, based on the fact that we've got a much bigger global reach than Rugby League, surely we have something that we could sell to them. And in fact, that meeting in April wasn't the first time that Simon Poitovan had thought of the connection between Rugby Union and Rupert Murdoch. So in March, he'd approached his friend Ian Frickberg with this idea of selling Rugby Union to News Limited. So this was before Super League had gone public, before Rugby Union had gone public with professionalism. You know, he was saying, we can do this. So it was clear that, you know, the storm was coming in. It wasn't just Super League that was going to send them professional. To quote an old uh, law phrase, there's a whale in the bay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't really remember the Rugby Union landscape in Australia. Was it pre-Super 12? Yes. So Super 12, and we're going to get to this Super 12 came out of all this yes yeah, but thought. there was a precursor called super 10 so don't th- remember it. yeah so it was a, mu- a much lesser thing um it basically had teams from australia new zealand south africa they're also i think like western samoa so that did predate all this happening but the organizing body sansa south africa new zealand australia rugby that was born out of what happened with the News Limited deal and establishing Super 12 Rugby. So after announcing their own professionalism, they encouraged the rest of the world to get on board, uh, met with resistance in the Northern Hemisphere, but also an acknowledgement that it was probably all going to happen. But the next International Rugby Board meeting wasn't until August. So there wasn't going to be any worldwide announcement until at least then in the meantime you had this world cup that was going to be played so it was all steam ahead in australia and new zealand but in the northern hemisphere it was still this holding pattern of of seeing how it was all going to play out and that led to some frustration from figures in english rugby union in particular so will carling uh famous paramour of princess die he was you know open in saying we all know money's in the game so 
Like, what are we doing here? Remember, he was a big name at one point, yeah. And so as this was all happening, one of our old friends, we haven't talked about him for a while, but David Smith actually got in contact with a senior official in Australian Rugby Union and said, you know, just because we've signed Rugby League doesn't mean we're not thinking about you. So there was interest on both sides. And Simon Poitovan then went to Sam Chisholm with the idea and Chisholm said, yep, I think you should put it to Ken Cowley. I think he'll be very interested. So the first meeting took place on the 19th of April. So quick, isn't it? Yeah. And then it was less than a month after that that the formal negotiations were taking place, which resulted in a deal being announced in late June of 1995 of a $760 million, that's in Australian dollars, deal between the Southern Hemisphere Rugby Unions and News Limited. So as I said, that led to the creation of SANZA. This was the three rugby unions getting together to make this deal. So it was a 10-year deal, which basically gave News Limited the rights to rugby union until 2005. And unlike Super League, it didn't involve any administrative change really, except for the creation of this new governing body. So that was independent of News Limited. All they were selling was broadcasting rights. Wow. But even though they had that independence, their hands were still tied to a big extent in that they had to create a product to offer News Limited. So this is where you see the birth of Super Rugby. So Super 12 with five teams from New Zealand, four from South Africa and three from Australia, plus the Tri-Nation series. So one of the frustrations from rugby union administrators before this was that international football had been this hodgepodge. Oh, we, we might come to you guys next year. Do you guys want to come over? So this was taking care of all of that and making a regular calendar of rugby union. You've got to admire how quickly they put that together. I yeah. mean, like imagine that happening in the league. It would never happen. Yeah, Three yeah, countries' exactly. boards working together. And I mean, I never liked the game, but it was a legitimately exciting competition because of that. And it was massive, like, yeah. you know, in the late 90s. And, you know, especially... From an Australian perspective, when you had those Brumby teams doing well and being the basis of the Wallabies teams. Mm. And this immediately had effect on Super League strategy because suddenly one of their tactics, which was to try to go and get rugby union players, was a direct assault on their own organisation and what they were trying to do with rugby union. So eventually this led to Super League being told that they could no longer go after rugby union players. So the story goes that New Zealand rugby were getting a bit worried because all their players were going to go to Super League. And one of the New Zealand Rugby Union figures called up Sam Chisholm and told him what was happening, to which a chase and John Rebo had to call back the New Zealand Rugby Union guy and say, oh, don't worry, we're not going to go after any of your players. And and that was the end of it. Sam Chisholm wielded some power back in the day. Oh, yeah. God. He's kind of a bit outside of our scope. He's a very pivotal figure in some ways in Super League. But it's in this, you know, he was based overseas. It's not really part of our story, but a very interesting figure in that he worked for Packer for so many years, then switched to Murdoch. So in the thick of it, he, you know, he was there being well known to both of them. Everything you hear about that guy, though, is uh, considered almost in the Cowley mold as everyone's made in a knockabout businessman as as opposed to a shark, you know? Yeah, exactly. Which is pretty cool. Um, But... A master negotiator. In fact, when the deal was being made, the rugby unions went to Chisholm with their offer 
uh, which I think was something like $100 million more than they eventually got. When he gave it to him, he feigned a heart attack <laughs> <laughs> and said, no, you're not going to get that. And, <laughs> and so with that, the deal was announced and News Limited had control of Southern Hemisphere rugby for the next 10 years. The rugby unions were now in a position to offer substantial amounts of money to their players to keep them in the game. It's a shame they didn't keep a few more that we got. (laughs) And this is where the banner was thrown into the works with the World Rugby Corporation. So the Australian Rugby Union weren't the only ones who were watching developments of Super League with keen interest. And in the midst of it, a man named Jeff Levy, who was a you know rich businessman who happened to be a, a rugby man, saw all these developments and thought that rugby union had to do something. And although he loved the game and you know had a lot of business success, he knew he had to get someone more involved with rugby union than he was. So he got a man named Ross Turnbull, who was a former Wallaby prop, who had also had some business success and actually uh, was involved in rugby union administration in the 80s. Uh, had a poor reputation among rugby union types for his abilities in that regard. But regardless, he was the man that Jeff Levy went to. They started to come up with a concept uh, which became the World Rugby Corporation. They didn't know what was going on with the developments with News Limited. They thought this was our chance to go professional and you know, take rugby union to the next place. And so they immediately set to work on this plan. And we all know it didn't work out in the end. And really their mistake was not abandoning the idea as soon as the announcement was made from the, the unions because they were doing for themselves what Levy and Turnbull were trying to do. You know, like once the rugby unions decided that they were going professional and they were going to, you know, sell their product, well, what point was it for them to do it? Yeah, it's a bit of an uphill battle, wouldn't you say? So it was a bit of hubris, and that's even more so once the deal with Murdoch was signed. So like now you're not only going against the establishment of Rugby Union, but you're going against one of the biggest media outfits in the world. So Levy and Turnbull were the two key figures in it. They had other people. Michael Hill, who was actually a founding director of the Newcastle Knights, was on board. They got John Singleton in the mix to, to give them some money. Yet again, he pops up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is an interesting one. Simon Le Bon. Uh, what, from? Duran Duran frontman. Fair income. So he knew uh, Ross Turnbull. They met hiking up mid-sized mountains in America, as Peter Fitzsimons puts it. And, Mid-size? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Simon Le Bon, it turns out, is a big rugby union fan. That's amazing. And so they got him in the mix. I don't, in, not in a, you know, in a, any real capacity. But the, the way Levy puts it, we were looking for the Rod Stewart of rugby, some high-profile person who helped make the game more glamorous by their business association, the same way Stewart had with soccer. We thought Simon Le Bon might be that man. <laughs> Girls on film, that's more of a rugby league song, isn't it? <laughs> I actually checked his Twitter uh, in researching this, and he's still a rugby man. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, but you'll notice one man that I haven't mentioned there, Kerry Packer. And it's so funny because... I remember at the time, and to this day, it was always sold as Packer versus Murdoch round two. You know, this time Murdoch's the establishment and, and Packer's the, you know, the rebel. But his actual involvement was so late into the game and eventually so minor 
that once again the narrative that's been driven like doesn't really reflect what was actually happening from a practical sense the the packer side of things were saying well, we are in the midst of this other war we don't really want to get involved in this right now uh we'll get involved as long as it's you know has establishment backing we're not really interested in starting a war so the war was started packer eventually like threw in some money so he was a financial backer but just like with super league his heart was never really in it mm. and just like with super league he sent james in to do you know any day-to-day action that needed to be taken but from the moment his name was actually linked to the wrc it was framed in the media murdoch versus packer and that's you never heard about these other guys or anyone else involved it was just the you know packers rugby rebellion still the narrative is, is last of the test of time so yeah. i sold a lot of papers back then yeah. still selling books now <laughs> yeah. so a lot of the action was to take place at the world cup so australia and new zealand actually went to south africa on the same plane and you know some of the officials there had to get together and say something's going on you know turnbull's in the mix there's just be wary of your players and at this point, News Limited found out about what was happening with the World Rugby Corporation in one of the most unlikely of sources, Michael O'Connor. <laughs> <laughs> so O'Connor was there in South Africa on behalf of Super League, uh, you know, as their, you know, ace negotiator. <laughs> Slash insult comic. <laughs> so he was there to try to sign up uh, whatever players he could to Super League. And while he was there, he met with the South African player to, you know, ask about, you know, the chances of bringing him over. And the South African player let slip that something was happening and it wasn't this Sanzar deal, it was something else uh, and found out about the WRC that way. Uh, John Rebos called him up and said, what's going on? Is the ARL there too? Are they signing players? And O'Connor said, don't worry about the ARL, you know, there's something bigger happening. At that point, he was summoned to the boardroom with Rupert Murdoch and had to give his report on what he'd learned over there. There you go. And the big talking point was that Francois Pienaar, who was famously played by Matt Damon in the movie Invictus, he was the South African captain. Same height or? (laughs) (laughs) So seen as a real hero of South African rugby. He was in the thick of it. So he was the key contact for the WRC in South Africa he'd signed and was basically driving all the South African players to sign along with him. And at this meeting, O'Connor mentioned the the PNR connection and Sam Chisholm actually shot him down and said, I've spoken to him. No, this is baseless. I don't think you know what you're talking about. Uh, to which O'Connor blurted out, PNR's a double agent. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And in, in Michael O'Connor's words, I didn't think it wise to go on with it because I think I was beginning to look like a fool. So Rupert Murdoch and the others in the room listened uh, and then, you know, O'Connor was, you know, asked to leave the meeting so they could get on re- with the rest of the agenda. <laughs> but his mail was right. PNR was heavily involved. Vindication. Yeah, vindication. From Australia, Phil Kearns was the key conspirator who was right behind the WRC and encouraging all the, the Wallabies to, to join him. New Zealand, it seemed to be fairly across the board. There was big support. They were all you know ready to go. One of the reasons was $760 million, or it was 
555 US, I think. Sounds like a lot, but spread over 10 years and three unions, there actually wasn't that much there for the players. Yeah, but also in that era, that was a lot of money for a TV deal, especially when you were shamateurism. But it was less than they could have got from Super League. Yeah. So it wasn't going to be enough. And so there was big player support for the WRC. And so it eventually went public that all this was going on and it was met with typically rugby union moralizing with an Peter Fitzsimons article. I remember this. I I don't know why I remember this article so clearly, but I remember at 14 reading this and going, is this bloke kidding himself? <laughs> so Fitzsimons wrote, what can you guys be thinking of? Rugby is your mother, damn it. For the past two decades, she's nurtured you, taken care of you, taught you, been proud to call you her own and held chook raffles so that you could travel around the world. She's allowed you to walk taller down George Street than ever you would have dreamed. And now that she's come into a large amount of money, you are guaranteed to enjoy enormous, enormous amounts of her largesse as one of her favourite sons. If you make a decision that that is still not enough, that you see fit instead her to whore for you too, to earn the very last buck for you she can, and to hell with the consequences, then you will be deserving of your fate. I remember you bringing this out to me a couple of years ago and uh, the contempt that you had for it. <laughs> it, it is the, one of the most pompous things ever written. Uh, and, you know, we talked about my opinion on Fitzsimons earlier. I think he's at his best when he's in on the joke of what a pompous git he is. Yeah. And to his credit, in this book, without refuting the charge, interviewed Phil Kearns and published Phil, Phil Kearns' comment. I thought it was the height of hypocrisy for you to write that sort of stuff about me when you'd already acknowledged that you'd signed with David Lord's professional rugby circus in 1983 and you'd lived all those years in France making money for playing rugby over there. Yep. <laughs> and so for a while, with all this player support, it looked like they were going to get over the line and it took some heavy leaning on by people like Sam Chisholm to turn the tide the other way. So it was South Africa that faltered first with Chisholm leaning on PNR to say, you know, don't do this. We can look after you. The New Zealand rugby union, you know, saying that they'd top up their players, um, the Australian rugby union doing the same. And so eventually the whole thing folded. And from the Australian perspective, it all ended with a meeting that was held on the 10th of August. So Phil Kearns was representing the players from the World Rugby Corporation and made a, it's like rugby league style naivety <laughs> that he could have made this mistake. So he got in a bloke named James Erskine, who was the head of IMG in Australia, to come in to give a talk about, you know, what this side could do for them, what this side, you know, way up the two sides, players can decide for themselves. Uh, the problem was that Erskine had a business relationship with the Australian Rugby Union in that he'd paid $42.5 million for marketing rights for the next five years. <laughs> and uh, on that, Phil Kern said, in hindsight, I guess I was naive in having him there. In getting him there, my intention was for him to say, this is one side, this is the other side, and boys, make your own decision. I didn't expect him to go at it the way he did. I was disappointed. I was upset. <laughs> That's beyond rebellion. <laughs> and so at the end of the meeting, Ian Ferrier came up to Phil Kearns and said, mate, we've signed 14 of the Wallabies. Phil Kearns said, okay, well, you know, I guess it's over. And so as this was going on, Packer also decided that they were bowing out. So this was in early August. They weren't formally linked to the deal until late July. So Packer's formal involvement was less than a month. 
Yeah. And yet 25 years later, it's still Packer vs. Murdoch 2. I'm very insular myself with rugby league, but I've completely forgotten about it. Round two. Yeah. <laughs> and just to close the WRC saga, I'm going to, again, give some Fitzsimons pomposity. <laughs> when it was finally all over, Kearns turned to Ferrier and Jeff Levy and said, can I buy you blokes a beer? As a finish to the final whistle blowing, it was perfect. There is no more idealised part of rugby mythology worldwide than the notion that following even the most bitter battle imaginable, you should always have a beer together afterwards. The rugby war had, in the end, been a very rugby kind of war. (laughs) So with that, with the WRC crushed, with professionalism ratified among the Australian rugby unions, with Sansard formed with a rich media deal in place, the last hurdle was the International Rugby Board and whether this would be a worldwide thing and a complete new era. And realistically, when they met in August, there was little choice. And there was a tinge of regret to their decision even as they were making it. So in the official report, they said, the concept of amateurism as a central philosophy of the game is redundant. Many may regret its passing, but its resurrection is not possible. Nick Farr-Jones was there and said it was like they were attending their own funeral the way they carried themselves at the meeting. And a Daily Mail report wrote, Some of the officials announcing the birth of professional rugby union did so with the shamefaced expressions of men who just surrendered to the Nazis. Which is weird because as we all know, rugby union men's response to Nazis (laughs) isn't surrender, but collaboration. We've beat that one within each of its life, that story. I love it. So that was the last step. Rugby union was now officially professionalism. And and let's talk about it now, where those two games entered a new century on the back of all this. Well, back to the earlier comment on, on the admiration for how quickly they got things going. This is what a Super League really was looking to do because the first half of last 25 years, Super Rugby was super strong until a yep. lot, lot of wrong turns, right? Mm. So what did they have? They had a completely new competition, completely new sides, three continents... And it worked. There was no tribalism yep. to go off, and it still worked. So if Super League had got up, maybe that would have worked for League. Maybe not as well. But I think one of the models we talked about was having the existing clubs remaining in a, you know, we even talked about it as a shoot shield style thing. And I think that's some way you could have retained the, the tribalism while also having the shiny new product. Well, they did that sort of, but they barely played for the clubs, did they? They were sort of no. like figureheads. Yeah, and I mean, the same thing would have happened with rugby league eventually. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we've got the feeder system now, so it could have worked, I suppose. Yeah. My preference in the models would have been a clean break, but yeah, I can see the benefits of that. And given the feeder system now, it would have worked quite well. And the other thing that you saw at this point was the player drain going the other way, where you did still have... A couple of players coming over. So Tian Strauss uh, from South Africa played for Cronulla in Super League and into 98. But basically from this point on, all the player movement was the other way. It was heartbreaking at the time. And it was, as I said at the start, it was an existential threat. With the reformation of rugby league in in 98, do you remember how bad it was? Yeah, and I I can remember, remember when Sailor and Matt Rogers went, that that's bad. And to Kiri when he yep. was the rising star, I was like, oh, mm. no. But the the Joey prolonged uh, decision about whether he was going to go, yeah, that was 
I was like <laughs> staying up at night. Like that that could have swung the balance to rugby union, and I'm, I'm dead serious. Yeah, and it again, it all comes back to Super League. The Super League deals were ending. The salary cap was enforced. Suddenly, if you wanted big money, that was where you went. We reaped what we sowed, though, from the eighties. So they owed us a few, but the Joey one, yeah, could have ended us. They were flying high in '99, and at the same time, like I didn't like the game, so I wasn't watching Super Rugby. But I could tell that it was cool. It was this cool thing that was happening. It was new, and that's what Super League was trying to do. Yeah, and and it was you know twelve teams, best of the best. <laughs> um, meanwhile, like it seemed like every week in that period, I was watching like the Northern Eagles versus the Aussie Mail Raiders. Yeah, like these terrible jerseys, Awful. these rubbish teams. Yeah. I swear every weekend that was the fixture. Sometimes the game just has a stale feel or a, a dirty feel. Yeah. And, and League had that stain on it yeah. then and that, that was shiny and new, the yeah. union. But the game wasn't as unwatchable then either. Back in the mid-90s, it was quite similar to League. Yeah. There was a, the running rugby, in inverted commas, I'm doing here for listeners. You could get some of that occasionally. By the mid to late 2000s, it was unwatchable. Yeah. And I guess the key question, which I don't think either of us are truly equipped to answer, is how did it fall so far from there? Like my, it reminds me of one day cricket. I mean, their argument, the elitism argument, is that we're just bash and barge. We don't know anything about strategy, and you know, unions full of strategy and blah blah blah. I despise short form cricket. I love Test cricket yeah. for the same elitist reasons. Right? Mm. One day cricket was flying high for twenty years, and then one day everyone went. This is garbage. <laughs> they play too much of it. The games don't mean anything. That was the biggest thing. The, the games don't mean anything. It becomes inconsequential. Well, too and many teams, I think, really hurt them. Too many. I think they killed the Golden Goose. Mm. Like, they had this perfect thing. They went to 14, then 16. Now, I think they're up to 18. Or did they go back? I, I don't know. No one cares. No, you know, it, it's just fallen so far off the radar. You know, we can see all, everything happening with the media deals at the moment. I think you're going to hit the nail on the head. I think the expansion, they had the Super League and it was working. Yeah. And they went, how can we rugby league this up a bit? Uh, but yeah, I really want to get uh, some more insight on this from people who maybe know more about it than us. So any rugby union fans or you know people who have watched this play out, what do you think? Where did it all go wrong? Uh, hit us up at the rugby league digest at gmail.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Book plug this week. I'm going to give it to Fitz. The rugby war. Uh, if you want, um, if you want more of that story, uh, it is a, a fairly comprehensive account from a true insider who could get some real interesting insight from the key players involved, uh, and also rugby's great split, Tony Collins' immaculate work from the global doyen of rugby league history. Also, I want to plug my own personal comedy Twitter at Andy Paskin Comic. It's just me mouthing off basically. Last thing, we've still got our mailbag episode to come. So uh, Awesome questions so far. Yeah, we've got some really uh, great stuff, but would love thing more. Again, we don't want to spoil the rest of the war. So if your question is Super League specific, try to keep it to uh, stuff we've covered or stuff that's happening in 1995. Uh, Short but, answer is it was all about pay TV, mate. <laughs> but uh, please keep those questions coming. Uh, so thanks for listening, uh, and we will speak to you soon. Take care.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 